Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you again this morning uh, on Facebook Live as opposed to Zoom, which uh, was great to kind of see everybody over the last few weeks across our whole three congregations. Uh, I think that was an incredible encouragement actually interacting with each other in the way that we're able to do that. Uh, but here we are back on Facebook Live and hopefully the quality is a, a little bit better. But interesting, isn't it? What a, what a time to be reading and studying the book of Ecclesiastes together. Uh, can I say many people have found Ecclesiastes to be a kind of a depressing book. Uh, the author's a bit of a bore. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he says. Everything is futile. He's kind of like the Eeyore of the Bible. Uh, you know, the donkey in Winnie the Pooh who kind of always sees the negative side of everything. And can I say, in the midst of COVID lockdowns, as if we need any more of that. He's known, can I say, the preacher uh, of Ecclesiastes for some famous quotes. Uh, here's one quote that I actually don't think is his, but it could be. Uh, can I just say, I apologise in advance for this quote, but here it is. If you've got little children beside you, cover their ears just for a moment. Here's the quote. Life's a bitch and then you die. I said sorry. Uh, some might say that that quote actually sums up Ecclesiastes. Uh, and while at first that might seem true, it's really quite the opposite. Ecclesiastes is a book that wants to show you how to make the most of your life. But it does it by offering us a dose of reality about our world, about our lives, and about the God who rules it all. Uh, the author wants you and I to have a right perspective on life. Uh, and so this is actually the perfect time to be studying Ecclesiastes together. Now, as we uh, slowly come out of COVID lockdowns, we ought to recognise this, I think, as a moment, a God-given moment, to take stock of our lives. We ought to be asking the question about what's important in life. What does God want me to be doing with my life? Do I need to press the reset button in some areas of my life? How do I make the most of this life that God has given me? Well, recognising reality is the uh, place that the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to start. And even, but even before we do that, let's just start with the author himself. Uh, Eleanor has already helpfully uh, given us some information there. But chapter 1, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. If you've got your Bibles there, have them open. That would be great, even though there's some of it on the screen. He says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, the writer described as the preacher or teacher. Uh, these are most likely the words of Israel's wisest king, King Solomon, David's, King David's son. Uh, we, we actually read about him and his prayer to God to grant him wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3 and 1 Kings chapter 4. If you get the daily Bible readings, those, uh, those passages are there. You can check them out. The term preacher used here actually refers to one who gathers gathers the people to hear the word of God. He actually stands in the line of ones like Moses or Elijah. I recently heard, heard Philip Jensen answering questions about how to connect with non-believers in our world today about the good news of God. And he said that if ever there's a book that speaks to our world, it's Ecclesiastes. Because it just so beautifully exposes how and where our world goes wrong and all the things that we chase after are wrong. 
and what God has done about it. And so it's a book that makes sense of our world to non-Christians. And yet, this is first and foremost a book written for believers. And it's written by a believer, the preacher. So this is a book for us to listen carefully to. It's a wisdom book, part of the wisdom literature that kind of adds some nuance to the kind of cause and effect wisdom of the book of Proverbs. Not everything happens the way that you think it should. It's a book that helps us to understand the meaning of life. And like the best of preachers, uh, he launches straight into this sermon by grabbing their attention and raising a significant tension. Uh, It also happens to be the big idea of the sermon here. See there in verse 2, see what he says? He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, Verse 2 is the slogan, if you like, of the book. The NIV translation translates the Hebrew word for vanity, hebel. It translates it as meaningless. That is, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But that's not a helpful translation. Uh, The rest of Ecclesiastes actually demonstrates that there is meaning in our world. And when the same word is used in other places in the Bible, it's normally translated as breath or vapour or mist. Uh, Certainly Psalm 39 or Psalm 144. I think the kids' talk made it very clear, didn't it? The book of James in the New Testament expresses the idea well, I think. In James chapter 4, verse 14, he actually challenges the foolishness of the person who, who thinks they have control over their life's plans And he says to them in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now you might translate verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 as mist and vapour. All is mist and vapour. Everything is not meaningless. It's just fleeting, elusive, frustrating. Which leads the preacher to his big question of the book. Uh, See there in verse 3. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the implied answer there is nothing. There is no ultimate gain. It's it's a commercial term. Uh, What does a person gain? What uh, What does she profit from all of her toil? What's the bottom line? What's the achievement that we can hold on to? All is vanity, says the preacher. And he goes on to show us that that's just the way it is. And notice that he's referring to it being the way it is under the sun. Now that little phrase, under the sun, which reoccurs all over the place in Ephesians, it refers to what life is like now. Uh, For all people, whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God, that is what life is like now. This is life before the new creation arrives at the return of Jesus. That's just the way it is. There is no ultimate gain. All is vanity, says the preacher. That's exactly what verse 4 is saying. See verse 4? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You know, compared to the earth that just kind of goes on and on, our lives are just so fleeting. They come, they go, in a couple of generations, nothing about us will be remembered. There is no lasting gain. 
we are just bugs hitting the windscreen of eternity. And the poem about nature that he's written is to demonstrate just how futile and wearisome all of our striving after ultimate gain actually is. Uh, let's just pick it up there at verse 5. He says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The cycles of nature are illustrative of our lives. Uh, everything just kind of goes round and round without ever really making any lasting progress. It's the, if you like, the tedium of the treadmill. We run on the treadmill for kilometres with no destination. Uh, or we climb steps on the step machine that go nowhere. There's the endless cycle of doing what we've already done only to do it again. You know, the bridge you build will fall down again. The grass you mow will grow again. The person you heal will die. The house you clean will get messy again. You know, we want our son, Jed, to make his bed each morning. And he just thinks, why? It's just going to get messed up again. It's Eleanor's sandcastle all over again, isn't it? And then the, the example of streams or rivers flowing constantly into the sea... Uh, and yet no discernible outcome, the sea doesn't seem to get any fuller, is so often the pattern of our lives. We think if we work a bit harder, improve our time, improve our time management, invest wisely, do the hard yards, go the extra mile, we'll achieve the fame, the fortune, the recognition, the prestige, the power, the comfort, the good life. If I toil now, there'll be gain tomorrow. But will they? The reason men tend to have midlife crises is because of all their striving, or for all their striving, the reality eventually hits them that they, all that they have strived for is out of reach. Or maybe they've reached what they were aiming at, but it hasn't delivered the satisfaction that they were expecting. I have a family member who has invested the last 30 years of their life into his own business. It's required long hours, hard work, stressful moments with employees and partners and clients. It provided an income and put a roof over his family's head. But the strain and stress has taken its toll and after 30 years, it's about to close its doors. In six months' time, there will be no evidence left that his business even existed. And he wonders if the past 30 years have really been worth it. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It's the nature of life under the sun. Uh, it's the nature of all of our lives. It's, if the whole of creation is subject to constant repetition without really achieving anything... Why do we somehow assume that we're going to be able to achieve ultimate gain from all our toil? Why do we think things will be different for us, the preacher asks. 
There is nothing new under the sun, he says in verse 9. He says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. Now, perhaps we kind of balk at that comment and say, well, actually, there's a lot of new things that, have, uh, that we have now that previous generations didn't have. Uh, technology has come a long way. But that's to miss the point that there is nothing new that can break the cycle of God's world and bring about a different outcome for humanity. A generation comes and goes, followed by another. And none of them will ultimately change the way that God's world works. As they say, the sands of time will pass over any marks that we make and erase them from human memory. You won't even be remembered by your own family. I never knew my great-grandfather. Uh, all I knew about him is that he was a, a wonderful, godly man who loved his Bible. It's a great thing to be remembered for, isn't it, really? Now, I may have, but I don't remember ever seeing a picture of him. That is, until a few weeks ago, when one of those ancestry sites sent me this photo and said, is this your great-grandfather? I didn't even know. Uh, but I checked with my parents, and it is. Uh, he left the world about 70 years ago, and I remember almost nothing about him. And my guess is that you don't know much about your great-grandparents either. Creation might be a cycle that goes and round and round, but not history. The one thing that we really make progress in is the steady march towards our death. That's the way it is. That's what life is like under the sun. It's fleeting. It's frustrating. There is no ultimate gain, no enduring profit. The question is, why is that the way it is? Why is our world the way it is? And why do we experience it in the way that we do? Well, the most people realize, what most people realise is that Ecclesiastes is actually the outworking of Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible. It's the outworking of humanity's fall into sinful rebellion against God. I mean, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you might remember, God creates a good and a satisfying world, and he gives it, it as a gift to humanity to enjoy within the boundaries that God had set. But instead of uh, receiving and enjoying God's good and generous gifts, they want to take God's place. Adam and Eve want to be like God. They want to make a name for themselves, build their own glory. And as a result of their rebellion, our world has been fractured by sin ever since. And God's judgment came as a curse upon the good gifts that God had given to humanity to enjoy. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Genesis 3, verse 17 on the screen there. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God's punishment for human rebellion is hard work, pain, 
frustration and ultimately death. And Ecclesiastes actually comes to grips with life after the fall that is outside of Eden. Ecclesiastes is a a God-centered view of reality as a result of Genesis 1 to 3. And it warns all of us to stop making the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. Instead of enjoying God's good gifts of relationship and work and food, things that we'll see throughout Ecclesiastes, we try to use his gifts to make a name for ourselves, to use what he has given to seek gain apart from him. It won't work, says the preacher. God made a good world, but humanity's sin has made it frustrating and fleeting and messy and disappointing. If you're feeling like life's horrible and then you die, to paraphrase someone else's quote, then that's probably because you haven't yet fully grasped what the preacher is going to help us understand about how to make the most of our lives. Because this depressing reality is not the end of the story. What we're going to see is that the preacher is trying to wake us up from our false ideas of the world. And yet even though he can't help us see the problem, so even though he can help us see the problem, even though he can help us live wisely in light of it, he can't help us fix the problem. But there is one who can, because as we read on in God's Word, in the Bible, in the New Testament, only in Jesus has God provided a solution to the problem of human sin and God's judgment upon our world. See, Jesus himself, remember, he groaned at the pain of the curse on our world. On one occasion, uh, his friend Lazarus had died. The Apostle John actually records in John chapter 11, verse 33, he says there that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And the original word the Bible uses there means to roar with anger. I mean, Jesus isn't just grieving over his friend's death, he's angry about it. He's angry at death itself. He knows that death is an intrusion into our world because our world all over is not what it should be. Jesus knows that death is a sign of the brokenness of our world. He understands our frustration and pain. But the really good news is that Jesus is able to fix the fracture in this fallen world. Through his own death and resurrection, he pays sin's penalty. He removes the curse for everyone who will put their trust in him. But can I say that that curse is not removed in this life? We still live in the Ecclesiastes world for now. And there is, as we'll see, a right way, a wise way to live in this fallen world until Jesus returns. A a way that will help us to make the most of this life. But when Jesus does return, there will be a new creation. No more sin, no more frustration, pain, sweat, death. Life is about receiving God's gifts, not making gain. And if you haven't yet done it, receiving God's gift of forgiveness and eternal life, that is the greatest gain that you will ever receive. 
And if you haven't done that yet, I wouldn't wait another day if I were you. Let us know if you'd like to do that so that we can help you. Put it in on the Connect card there and we can get in touch with you and pray with you. And for those of you who do know Jesus, who know that he has saved you, do you remember the freedom and the joy you felt when you realised that salvation came to you as a gift, not a task, not something you could gain? A gift is not earned, it's given. So why would we treat any other of God's gifts as a means of gain? All of life is to, be, is to be received as a gift of God's grace, his generosity, to be enjoyed with thankfulness, even in the midst of the mess. So what do we do about the way that it is? Well, we want to know, uh, in, our, in this world, we want to know, what can I gain? That's the kind of big question we tend to ask. And Ecclesiastes says to us, stop chasing gain. Stop chasing gain. Some of you will remember Rene Rivkin, uh, flamboyant entrepreneur, investment advisor, uh, stockbroker. Uh, he famously said that the aim of life is to maximise pleasure and to minimise pain. Of course, he certainly aimed to live the extravagant high life, uh, but he was convicted of insider trading in 2003. He divorced his wife of 30 years and one month later committed suicide in his mother's Sydney home. See, there's absolutely nothing left of the millions of dollars that he accumulated during his lifetime. And here is all that's left of Rene Rivkin. You can see there on your screen a small tombstone in our eastern suburbs cemetery that one of our members was walking past this week and took a photo of. See, we need to give up on thinking that we can make the gains, the gains that we're after, only if I can, what, get these marks? If I got that job? If I married this woman or that man? I mean, perhaps you can just add what you think will like make life better for you. What's getting in the, way, in the way of you enjoying what God has given us each day, even if it's messy or frustrating or disappointing? Maybe it's your finances or your kids or where you live or your health or your relationships, your job. Maybe it's the monotony of every day, of getting up and having to do it all over again. For what? See, some people live with bitterness or anger or disappointment or fear or exhaustion or frustration. You see, Jesus died to save us from these things. Humans want the world to work to produce gain for them. But that's not the way that God wants us to live. I mean, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is reminding us that God wants us to accept life as a gift. That yes, life is short. We will all die. We will all face God's judgment. Accept that reality, he says. But for those who have accepted Jesus as their saviour, God has a perfect eternity waiting for us. So live wisely in light of that. Accept that life here is fleeting. 
but let that enable us to enjoy the gifts that God has given us today, even in the mess. And Graham Goldsworthy makes the helpful observation in his book, Gospel and Wisdom. He says that as Christians, we know our final goal with its resolution of all that is wrong in this world, and yet we do not know what tomorrow brings. But he says, the preacher has an important lesson for us. Take life a day at a time and enjoy it with its toil as a gift from God. Well, friends, we're going to pray and uh, Archie is going to lead us this morning in prayer. Let's pray together.